I encourage you to take your Bible this morning and let's turn together to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 69 through 75. Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. If you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. Again, Matthew chapter 26, verse 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he immediately began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You can be seated. The story we find before us this morning is one that is well known, sometimes even outside of Christian circles. Uh, Even those who do not know the, the scriptures and know the scriptures well, know of the, of the two disciples who uh, betrayed or denied Jesus, one being Judas and the other being Peter. Peter's story is well documented in many places. And what's interesting about this passage of scripture this morning, before we even get started, is the importance of this passage is related to the testimony and the trustworthiness of the scriptures that we have before us. And you see the fact that all four of the gospel writers include this account in the scriptures. In fact, many believe that it's because of Peter's presence here in this moment, uh, these, these events are taking place, that we have the understanding in all of the gospel accounts of what actually happened here. Peter was the one who was instrumental in the writing of the book of Mark and assisting Mark and giving him the background and the details. And it was because of Peter's presence here in this moment. But what's important about this passage is that in the grand scheme of things, if the scriptures were not true, if, if what's happening here in the gospel was not true, if men were just gathering together to put together a set of teachings or a set of books in order to propagate some false testimony or some false gospel, this story would not be included in the gospel accounts. Because nothing here looks good from Peter's perspective. If you're going to talk about a man who would eventually become a great leader in the church, you probably don't want to talk about the time that he three times denied the very one who he had said he had committed his life to. But the very fact that Mark, again, writing under the influence of Peter, included this in his gospel, and all of the other gospel writers did as well, uh, betray or, or, or alludes to the trustworthiness of Scripture because they're honest here. They're, they're being honest about sinfulness. They're being honest about the sinfulness of man. They're being honest about the, the temptations that we all face. And as we look here at Peter, and we see a man who, although sins very grievously, by the time this is all over, we're going to understand the power of God's redemption and restoration in the life of the Apostle Peter. Inside this passage, we actually see the second of two trials that occurred on that night. Last week we looked at Jesus before Caiaphas the high priest, and we see him being tried there by the Sanhedrin, and today we're looking at the Apostle Peter as he is being tried by the court of public opinion. 
The first thing that I want you to notice here are the denials in this passage. There are three of them. We know this very well. Jesus had spoken and said, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And as we look at this, I want to take and just very briefly look at each one of these denials and, and to see the progression inside of Peter's life. The first one happens in verse 68 and 60, I mean, excuse me, verse 69 and 70. Notice what it says now. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. Now, if you recall from last week, Peter had made his way into the courtyard. The Sanhedrin is meeting in the home of the high priest. And so they're really kind of up on an elevated porch-like setting. And then below that porch was a courtyard where people could gather into now, this was not open to just anyone to come in. Now, this was for the servants of the high priest and the slaves and those and the soldiers, though, who had been a part uh, of the events of that night. But John tells us that Peter had made his way in by another disciple. Now, most believe that this other disciple was John, because if you ever read the Gospel of John, this is kind of the way John describes himself. Uh, he, he always just calls himself the other disciple. He does not like to pull attention to himself. So when you see that in the Gospel of John, it's usually referring to himself. So the other disciple, John, knew the doorkeeper. He knew who was guarding the door there at the high priest's courtyard, and he went out and spoke to them, and they allowed the apostle Peter to come inside. So John gives us more detail in that the servant girl, the one who's speaking here, was actually the doorkeeper who let him in. So I want you to picture this in your mind. Peter has made his way inside to the courtyard, and everyone's gathered here for one purpose, and that's to watch the events that are taking place. They're watching Jesus on trial. They're watching this mockery of a court case that we talked about last week as Jesus is being falsely accused and falsely accused over and over and over again. And Peter's gathering there and he's watching. They're watching to see exactly what's going to unfold in this moment. And then as all this is taking place, this servant girl, you know, Peter hears, he, he thinks that he's hiding amongst the crowd, that he's disappeared into this large group of people. And all of a sudden, this servant girl, this slave girl comes up to him and she says, hey, I know you. You were, you were with Jesus. You were with Jesus, the Galilean. The, using that Galilean and, and the term Jesus of Nazareth were kind of a slang term of, a, of degradation because of, uh, of the, the place that they were from. You remember, as it was said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So she's kind of speaking down to him. She's saying, well, you know, basically, what are you doing here? Because you're, you're one of them. Now here's a moment, right? Here's a moment where Peter could boldly declare his allegiance to Christ. And remember, right here in this moment, Peter's not in front of the Sanhedrin. He's not in front of the high priest. He's not in front of the Roman authorities or, or any of the guards or the soldiers. This is just a servant girl. It's just an employee of the high priest. This is no one with any great authority or power. So in this moment, Peter could have boldly stood up and said, yeah, that's right. I'm one of them. I'm one of those who serve Jesus and follow after the way. But what does Peter do? It says, but he denied it before them all because what happened is this girl began to speak. Others began to notice, right? Because they're watching this trial take place. They know who Jesus is. And so they hear this servant girl point to Peter and say, hey, you are with Jesus. So now everyone turns and they're looking at Peter and he says, no, no. I don't know what you're talking about. He, he really feigns ignorance here. In this, in this first and out, he doesn't out and out deny. He just says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I, I, don't, I don't have any clue what you mean by that. You, you must be mistaken. You must be thinking of someone else who just looks like me. Spurgeon said, whatever the consequences of confessing Christ might have been to Peter, they could not have been as bad as this base denial was. End quote. This man who in so many other places in the New Testament we see as bold and braggadocious and spurious and, 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 and really kind of off the cuff here caught in the moment, just out and out tries to ignore the question. Tries to pass it off. He, in his mind, he thinks, well, if I can just get them distracted, we'll, we'll get them thinking about something else and, and they'll forget and I won't have to worry about it anymore. But it didn't just happen one time. Notice it happens again. Look at verse 71. And when he had gone out into the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So what happens in the interluding moments is that Peter begins to try to get away. He's been in the courtyard. Now he's in the gateway, which is basically the hallway uh, from the outside street inside to the courtyard where he was at. So he's now moved away from being out in the visible open to now in this hallway. And he's trying to get out, but for some reason he can't get out the door. We don't know whether the doorway was blocked. We don't know whether the, the guards just wouldn't let him out. But so now he's kind of stuck in this hallway, but it's a lot darker there. So Peter's happy because he can hide a little bit more in the crowd, hide in the shadows so he can avoid being seen, avoid being recognized anymore. But even though he thinks he has covered it over, even though he thinks he is now being able to hide, yet another servant girl walks up to him. And this time she is more firm. It says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Luke tells us that somebody else, another man, based upon the language, he doesn't give a name, but he, he uses the masculine tense, and he says that another saw him and said, you, you are one of them. So now the whole crowd is gathering in because they're beginning to recognize, people are beginning to look. And this time, Peter doesn't just try to ignore the accusation. He doesn't just try to pass off the question, but he, he swears an oath. This despite the fact that Jesus had previously warned His disciples about swearing such oaths. In Matthew chapter 5, He said, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So in an effort to cover for himself, in an effort to try to hide and to disappear again, even though the accusation has been so firm, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter had in this moment the ability, the time, the opportunity to stand boldly and declare his allegiance to his master. And why is this so profound? Because remember, what had Peter said earlier? He said, Jesus, I, I will never deny you. I will even go to the death for you. But in this moment where there was no challenge, I mean, there, all, all they were saying was, we recognize you as one of Jesus' followers. Peter swears an oath. And the reason that people swear oaths 
is that they're trying to prove their trustworthiness. But the word of a Christian should be trustworthy without need of an oath. We should not have to pledge our truthfulness. We should be so known as our word is our bond that when we say yes, it means yes. And when we say no, it means no. And people never have any question about whether we are telling the truth or not. The validity of such vows is clearly seen in this situation, right? Because Peter's willing to swear an oath, but he's not telling the truth. He's willing to swear that he's telling the truth, I pledge to know that he's telling the truth, but we know that he's not telling the truth. It's often been said that those who feel the need to swear by oaths are almost, almost all the time not actually telling the truth. The sad thing is, is that we see here in this moment that Peter goes even further, not just by swearing an oath, but by declaring, I do not know the man. How tragic. A moment is one such as this when such a close companion of the Messiah denies that he even knows who he is. This man who had followed after Jesus, who had walked alongside him, seen the miracles, seen the resurrection of the dead, seen the healing of the blind and the lame and the deaf, seen people's lives transformed by the power of the gospel, I mean, and and even not just as one of the disciples, but even as part of that close, intimate fellowship of friends that Jesus had amongst Peter, James, and John. I mean, this, this man had been there for everything. But yet in this moment, he looks at those people gathered around him and he says, I I don't know him. I have, I have nothing to do with him. I don't have any connection to him. He denies flatly being connected and knowing Jesus. It's a tragedy. But brothers and sisters, how tragic is it when we, those of us in this room, who have been forgiven by Jesus, deny that we even know Him, whether by our word or by our deed. There are moments and times in our life where we deny Jesus by our very words where someone asks us a question, that we have the opportunity to stand boldly upon the Word of God and declare truth, and we shrink back because we're afraid of what may happen to us. And in doing so, we are denying our Lord. Sometimes it comes indeed because we have the opportunity to stand. We have the opportunity to do something. We have the opportunity to be a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we shrink back and we deny our Lord Then there's a third denial. Look at verse 73. It says a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Some time has passed between the first two denials. Luke tells us that it's about an hour. No doubt in that hour, Peter began to become more confident in his hiding amongst the crowd. Yet he couldn't get out. He's still there. He's watching everything take place. As all this hour has elapsed, Jesus has suffered through this trial. He suffered through being falsely accused. He has made this bold declaration of who he is as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And really coinciding with this moment of what's happening now as Peter stands here is that they've come to the point where Jesus is being brutally beaten, spit upon, slapped, punched in the face, mocked in blasphemous terms. And in this moment, in this time, now everyone begins to realize who Peter is. So all the bystanders, not just the servant girl, not just the one who had connections to those who worked there, but now everyone, they're, they're all looking around. No doubt in the interluding hour, people had begun to whisper amongst themselves, hey, that guy over there, I think he was with Jesus. He, he looks like one of them. Listen, listen to the way he talks. There's no doubt by the way he talks that he's been with Jesus. Suddenly, Peter is in the spotlight. As people begin to crowd around him and they're saying, we, we know who you are. Peter has been fully exposed here in this situation. But it, but it gets even worse from Peter's perspective because John tells us that not only are all the bystanders pointing at him and saying, we know that you are one of Jesus' servants. We know that you're one of his disciples. That it says that one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose, Peter, uh, whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? So in, in everything that Peter had tried to deny, now God makes it so forceful. It's not just people making accusations. In fact, the Malchus' cousin or relative or some, we don't know how he's related, but here he is standing there in front of Peter and he says, yeah, yeah, I know you. You were in the garden earlier with Jesus. And we can only imagine at this moment that Peter's stomach is turned into knots. Not only has he been recognized, but he's been recognized by somebody who has the potential really to cause him great difficulty. Cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest would have been something that Peter could have been arrested for. And even though Jesus healed this servant, it still would have given cause for him to be arrested. So now, Peter almost turns into this fight-or-flight mechanism. His adrenaline is running at high alert, and he has to find a way to escape. He has to try to, way to, to get away. And, and Peter's choice here is not to just stand up and say, yes, I am. I am a disciple of Jesus. His choice is to veer into more sin. He begins to curse and to swear that he does not know who Jesus is. There's perhaps no more powerful text that alludes to the fact of what we've always heard is that one sin leads to another sin, leads to another sin, and on down the road we go. I don't remember who said it first, but there's an old saying that says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And we see this pictured here so perfectly in the life of Peter. Peter wanted to follow Jesus. We know that because he had spent three years doing so. He wanted to be a faithful disciple, but yet because of decisions that he had made, because of things that he had done, now he finds himself in this situation where he continues to falter and fail and sin. When it says that he began to swear and curse, this was a way for someone to declare their own innocence. And in a sense, what it was, was the idea of calling down curses upon yourself, saying, may I be cursed if I'm not telling the truth? And then the truthfulness of that person would be unveiled if whatever the curse that person called down upon themselves didn't come to pass. 
So Peter's calling on, he's calling out everything he can think of to escape in this moment. So now he has denied Jesus three times. I want us to think for a moment this morning, not just about the denials, but about the reasoning. Why would Peter have done these things? I think there's some clear things in the text that we can look at to help us understand how you can go from a man who was so bold to a man now who is so cowardly. And the first one, I think, is pride and arrogance. First Corinthians, Paul writes and he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The Apostle Peter was filled with pride. You remember earlier in this chapter when Jesus had told them that you will be fallen away. He said, you will all fall away from me because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. What did, what did Peter say? Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, it's easy to look at that and think, well, just, you know, how, how brave Peter was. No, that's, that's not, that is not a statement of bravery. That's a statement of pride and arrogance. Peter thought in and of himself that he had the power to do that. And as Peter looked around the table, notice what Peter's saying there. As Peter looks around the table and he says, Jesus, all these other guys may fall away, but I won't. He's arrogant and even his view of the other apostles. He thinks all of these guys, as, as Peter took a calculation of the room, he's like, yeah, I can see him falling. I can see him falling. Yep, 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 yep. He goes all the way around the room. But then when he comes to himself, he says, no, Jesus, I'll never fall. There was pride and arrogance in Peter's heart. But there's also an ungodly self-confidence. Because he goes on and he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Again, is confident in his own self, not, not in trusting in the power of God to do those kinds of things. It would have been a completely different picture if, Jesus, if Peter had said in this moment, Jesus, I want to ask you to help me to stand with you. Help me to not fall away. Jesus, you've said that we're all going to deny you, that we're all going to fall away. What can we do? How can you help us? Give us the power that we need to stand and to not deny you. But in his own heart and mind, Peter said, I've already got this. I I can take care of this by myself. And if we're honest this morning, we can find ourselves in that same type of place where we try to fight the Christian life, fight the battles of the Christian life on our own strength. We think, oh, I can handle this. I can do this. But you can't. There's not a day that goes by that we do not need the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not a thing that we will encounter as Christians that we do not need full dependence upon Christ. Because it's in those moments that we try to do it in our own strength that everything begins to fall apart. And we need that trust in Him. The last thing that we see here is the reasoning of why Peter fell in this moment was that he compromised. How did he compromise? Well, we can look at it from the situation that he finds himself in. Again, notice, Peter had been following at a distance. 
He had not been there where Jesus was. He had not been alongside of his master. He wasn't in the place that he should have been. But then as he goes into the courtyard, now he has positioned himself amongst those people who are enemies of Christ. No one gathered there in that courtroom uh, or in that courtyard was gathered there today because they hoped that Jesus would be set free. No one was gathered there because they were in support of Christ. They were gathered there because they were against Christ. They were there to see that Jesus was punished. They were there to see that this plan was carried out. They were there to support the idea of this plan being carried out. Peter had put himself right in the middle of those who were vehemently opposed to God. Remember what Psalm chapter 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Peter compromised by putting himself in a place, putting himself around those who were enemies of God. It is no doubt that he was going to fall because he was surrounding himself with people who hated Christ. So we see the characteristics in his life, but there were some things that Peter could have done that I think would have helped him in this situation. Number one, Peter could have listened more. Jesus had not only warned the disciples, but Peter directly that changes and difficulty were coming. But because of that pride we mentioned earlier, Peter refused to listen. His confidence was such that upon hearing the words that Jesus spoke, Peter would have responded in some way similar to this, well, you're wrong, Jesus. That, That will never happen that way. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I would hope that if I were in Peter's situation in that moment and Jesus looked at me and he said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Basically, to, to put you to the test. And notice that Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, and I'm going to stop it. He says, Satan has permission to, uh, requested permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and once you have turned again, that you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is going to happen. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. Satan has demanded permission to do this. We see this happening in the book of Job, right? Satan comes to God and says, I want to test Job. And God says, you can do this and no further. Here we see the same thing happening in this moment. He says, I'm going to allow Satan to do this, but I have been praying for you. And if Peter had listened, if Peter had not allowed his pride and arrogance to get in the way, he would have no doubt responded differently in this moment because he would have remembered, this is what Jesus was talking about. As a side note, let us be very clear that when things happen in our life, nothing happens outside of the sovereign will and permission of God. There are so many people, so many even well-intentioned Christians who give Satan far too much credit in the things that happen in their life. Does Satan bring testing and trial to us? Yes, he does. But he can only do so by the sovereign will and permission of God. So Peter should have listened more. Peter should have secondly prayed more. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus had gone to the garden to pray. And we've talked before about how if Jesus needed to pray, if the very Son of God needed to go to, before the Lord and to pray in His human flesh, how much more so we need to pray. And Jesus even told His disciples to come and to pray with me. 
And he told them that they should pray because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. But nowhere from that point to this point here, do we ever see any of the apostles obeying the command of Jesus that they should watch and that they should pray. Brothers and sisters, it is through prayer that we gain strength in the battles of our faith. We can know the Scriptures. And we can trust in those things. But there's something about the power of prayer that God has given to us as believers that is transformative in the way that we can stand against the battles of this world. To go to the Lord in prayer and to know that we have communication with the God of all creation and that as soon as we open our mouth, that God hears our prayers. Peter should have prayed more. And Peter should have humbled himself more. How do we know this? It's demonstrated in the text that he should have been more humble. But Peter himself gives us a warning. If you were to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, listen to Peter's own words. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We can see that by his own testimony, Peter could look back and see the weaknesses in his own life and how he should have humbled himself and to have been on guard to guard against the things that were going to happen to him in this moment. And the last thing Peter should have done was to watch his life. We talked about the compromise earlier that he compromised. And so in order to avoid that compromise, Peter should have watched his life more carefully. As he entered into this courtyard, he no doubt thought he could hide there and face no dangerous repercussions. But beloved, we cannot hide in the world and expect it not to affect our Christian walk. We cannot spend our time fully amongst those who are non-believers and not not expect it to have an effect on our lives. Peter loved the Lord. We know that from his testimony. We know that from his life. But in this moment, his fear overwhelmed his faith. The last thing I want you to notice in this passage occurs there in the last two verses. We've seen his denials. We've seen the reasonings. And now I want you to look at the repentant heart. Look at the end of verse 74. It says, Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It is very easy for us to read this story and to criticize Peter. It's easy for us to look at this and say, Well, how how could he be so weak? How could he be so frail in his faith? How could he be so compromising in this situation? Because we like to think that if we were in the same place, that we would have acted differently. But given the moment, given the environment, given our sinful flesh, we would have behaved much the same. Now this is not to deny the tragic nature of Peter's sin. Peter sinned here. 
and he sinned grievously. He denied the Lord he loved, not once, which would have been bad enough, not twice, which would have been even worse, but three times. And each time with a growing anger, with a growing frustration, and with a growing level of sinfulness. Every time he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he was becoming more sinful in his actions because he was becoming more grotesque in the way that he was denying him. But the beautiful part about this passage is the way that it ends. And it ends really kind of abruptly for us because this is the last time that Peter is mentioned in the book of Matthew. And it's just those final seven words. And he went out and wept bitterly. But in those seven words, what we discover is the rest of the story. Because this passage is not given to us by the gospel writers in order for us to look down upon Peter and to point our finger at him and to berate him for his lack of faith. But it is given to us so that we can see the real possibility of serious sin in our life and the proper response to that sin. Because what we see in this moment at the end of verse 75 is true repentance. And that is put up against what we will look at next week in the life of Judas, which is false repentance. So what does true repentance look like? What does it look like for someone to truly turn from sin and to put their faith and trust in Christ? What does it look like for the Christian who sees and recognizes sin in their own life to go before the Lord and to repent of that sin? Well, the first thing that it takes is recognition. The Scripture says that before uh, that, that uh, he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. As that rooster began to crow, immediately Peter recalled the words of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that all throughout the events of the night, he knew what Jesus had said, Jesus, Jesus has said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He knew that. He, it, was in the, it was in his mind. And yet, after the first time he denied Jesus, he didn't think about it. And after the second time he denied Jesus, he didn't think about it. And the third time he denied Jesus, he didn't think about it. It wasn't until the moment that that rooster crowed that all of a sudden it all clicked inside Peter's head. And suddenly he realized what he had done. Brothers and sisters, this is the destructive power of sin. Sin blinds us to the things that we know. Sin blinds us to the things that we have confessed. And we have to have something in our hearts, something in our lives that provides to us the recognition of that sin so that we can more immediately turn away from it. What is it that spurned the recognition here? Well, it was the rooster crowing, but it says that Peter, what? He remembered the word. It was the Word that provided the recognition for Peter's sin in his heart. Luke tells us that in this moment that not only did the rooster crow, but that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Now you think about this room. There's a lot of people gathered here. Hundreds of people gathered into this courtyard. And in this moment, Jesus has been beaten. He's been spat upon. And they're getting ready to to drag him out to go to Pilate. And as the rooster begins to crow, Jesus looks over and connects eyes with Peter. 
Because Jesus knows where he's at. He knows where he's been the whole time. Even though they were far away, Jesus knew every moment that Peter was denying him. And so he looks at Peter and he makes this connection. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. So too, when we are in sin, we should remember the word of God in Scripture. This is why, brothers and sisters, it is not an optional thing for us as Christians to read our Bibles. It is not optional for us to pray. The reason that we read our Bibles is because we need the recognition of the Word of God in our lives to identify the sin in our lives. It is not enough for us to do it in our own strength because Peter could not do it in his own strength. He could not recognize over three denials of Jesus that he was sinning. It wasn't until the rooster crowed and the Word of God was reminded upon his heart that he recognized and understood what he was doing. We need the Word of God as that continual reminder and recognition so that we can see the sin in our own hearts and lives. So there's a recognition that must take place. That's what true repentance is. There's a recognition of sin. The person who comes to faith in Christ for the first time, that's what spurs it on. They see their sinfulness for the first time. Why? Because they've been confronted by the Word of God. They've been confronted by the truth of Scripture. And the second thing that comes out of that is brokenness and weeping. It says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is a great place to compare and contrast what we see happening in the life of Peter and what we see happening in the life of Judas. The Scripture tells us that the sorrow of the Lord, the grief over our sin, leads us to life and to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Peter was truly broken over his sin, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Judas was broken over the fact that he had been found out. The fact that his reputation was going to be tarnished. The fact that people were going to think bad about him. And the Scripture says that Judas repented, but it was not a biblical repentance. It was a worldly repentance, which the Scripture says here produces death. And it's exactly what we see happen in the life of Judas because he went out and he took his own life. Not sorrowful because of his sin, but sorrowful because other people knew about his sin. That he had been found out. He was not brokenhearted before God. But Peter was. Peter was brokenhearted before God and it said that he wept bitterly. Matthew Henry said, Those who have sinned sweetly must weep bitterly. For sooner or later sin will be bitterness. This is one of those areas that we need to be so careful. When we see someone coming to faith in Christ, we want to look for brokenness and sorrow in their lives. Every time in the Scriptures when we see someone come to faith in Christ, we see this evidenced, that they are brokenhearted and sorrowful over their sin. In this moment, Peter is weeping bitterly because he recognizes how great he has sinned before a holy God. And what he has done causes such sorrow and grief into his heart that he begins to cry out and to weep. A person does not come skipping to the throne of God in repentance. We don't come casually to the throne of God laughing all the way to Jesus in repentance. We come broken, sorrowful, 
weeping. Now we can walk away rejoicing. We can walk away in joy. But when we come, we are broken before a holy God. So Peter was broken. He was weeping. The next thing I want you to see about biblical repentance is that when biblical repentance occurs, there is restoration. Matthew Poole, in his commentary on this passage, says, A good man may fall, and that foully, but he shall not fall as to rise no more. Now, as I said earlier, this is the last time that the Apostle Peter is mentioned in the book of Matthew. So in order to understand what happens next, we have to look at other places in the Scripture. But I believe it's important for us to do so because we want to understand what transpired in Peter's life after this moment. After he experienced this biblical repentance, this sorrow over his sin, and he went out and he wept bitterly, what took place? Now remember that passage we read earlier where Jesus said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But what did he say? He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What a beautiful promise Jesus had given here to Simon Peter. He says, a trial is coming, but Peter, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And by God's glorious grace, Peter's faith did not fail in this moment. He failed in his strength. He failed in his humanness, but his faith did not. Peter sinned here and sinned grievously, but he did not lose his salvation. And even before this moment, Jesus had prayed for Peter. We look in John chapter 17 and beautiful passage of Scripture, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying. And in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had been praying for his disciples for three and a half years. He'd been praying for his disciples for centuries before that, even before he was on the earth. But the good news is this morning is that this passage tells us it was not only Jesus praying for Peter, but he was praying for us as well. Jesus is still even today making intercession on our behalf so that when we face these trials and these tribulations, we are not doing it alone. Peter here sinned grievously, but Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to pray that even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of this trial, that you will not lose your faith and that you may be restored. This is the restoration that we see happening in Peter's life. The clearest picture of Peter's restoration is found in the Gospel of John. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. They were fishing and they come into the beach and they begin to eat. In John chapter 21, it says, And they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What a glorious picture of restoration. What a glorious picture of of reconciliation and forgiveness. Not only did Jesus in his mercy, compassion, and grace forgive Peter, but he did in such a way that was unquestioned in the mind of Peter. Because I don't know if you noticed in the passage, but Jesus asked Peter this question, how many times? Three times. Why? Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And in this moment, he is reconciling all these things back to him. And the beautiful thing about this passage, he says, Simon, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, tend my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Yes, I, know, I do love you. Shepherd my sheep. But on that third one, it says Peter was grieved in that moment. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And in this moment, Peter is telling The truth. Because Jesus does know all things. Jesus does know Peter's heart. And even though earlier Peter had denied and lied about who his relationship with Jesus was, now here in this moment, he is genuinely confessing his love and his thankfulness and his commitment to the authority of who Jesus was. It's such a beautiful moment because now... He, he can boldly say this word, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. And in this moment, Jesus prepares Peter because he gives us this line. He says, he said, you've been able to do whatever you want to do. He says, but when you get old, he says, you're going to have to go places that you don't necessarily want to go. And when it comes time to the end of your life, you're going to be taken and you're going to be crucified. You're going to be killed. All these things are going to happen. And he spoke up to these things. And then at the area, he says, follow me. No matter what doubts Peter had experienced since that night in the courtyard, we know that it had to be many. If we're honest with ourselves, we know what it's like in our own lives when we've sinned. And even after we've been broken with repentance, we're still grieved on the inside. We still sometimes question ourselves, even after we know that we've repented and we've been forgiven. So no doubt since that moment, Peter has been beating himself up in his mind, like, why Did I do this? Why would I deny him? Why would I say that I didn't even know him? But in this beautiful picture, now Peter understands that he has been totally and fully forgiven. I'll call you back again to Luke chapter 22. Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And listen to this part. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Because this is a perfect description of Simon Peter's life from this point forward. If you were to go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he begins to preach 
They're asking the question, what shall he do? He says, Peter said, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The scripture goes on to say that those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. In the next chapter, Peter would stand up again to preach at the portico of Solomon. And he boldly declares, he looks out upon this Jewish audience and he said, it was you who crucified Jesus. It was you who have to stand before God and give an account of these things. But if you will put your faith and trust in him, you will be forgiven. In Acts chapter 4, they're arrested. They're taken before the religious leaders, the governing officials. And they said, you must cease preaching in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give you heed rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You want to know how great Jesus' forgiveness was? God took a man who had denied Jesus three times and turned him into one of the most powerful preachers to ever walk on the face of the earth. God took a man who was a coward in the face of a young servant girl and gave him the boldness to stand before the highest political figures of the day to boldly declare the truth and righteousness and boldness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel that all is lost. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that there's something in your life that you've not confessed. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've trusted in Christ, but you feel that you've done something to cause God to no longer love you or to care for you. Perhaps you've even done something as grievous as Peter. You've denied Christ through your word or through your deed. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the picture of Christ's love towards Peter in this passage. For it is the same to you today. Come to Him, broken in repentance, sorrowful over your sin, and then walk away rejoicing at the goodness and the grace and the mercy of such a compassionate God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank You for this Word. We thank You for this picture in the Apostle Peter's life. Lord, of the temptations of sinfulness in this world. For the example of one who sinned and and did so grievously, but Father, also one who responded in repentance, broken over his sin. And Lord, we know that he received by your grace and mercy complete and total forgiveness. And the Lord, his past and his sin did not hinder Him from doing great and mighty things for You. For Lord, it is Your power, Your strength, and Christ's righteousness that enables us to do the things that You've called us to do. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's someone here who does not know You as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would trust in You. Father, I pray that if there's someone here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, but this morning they recognize and realize that there's something in their life that they need to confess to you. And in this moment, they would do so. And Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.